A Star is Born is a movie that's been part of American pop culture since the original version came out in 1937, starring Janet Gaynor and Friedrich March. In 1954, a new version came out starring Judy Garland and James Mason. And in 1976, the movie was redone for the third time, starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. Critics are hard on that version, but I just rewatched it and I thought it was great. Now, in 2018, another version has been released featuring Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. I haven't had a chance to see it, but it's doing really well at the box office. This history includes an amazing list of talent. And with each remake, it becomes more and more apparent that the idea of someone being discovered and becoming a major popular figure and performer is both a wishful and wistful story. On today's podcast, I want to talk about how a new crop was born, a new kind of cultivated plant. And this crop has become a real star in the agricultural world. I'm talking about canola, a brand new crop that has only been around since the 1970s, but which has become an important part of the modern food supply. It's also an excellent example of the kind of sustainable farming option that we need for our mutual global societal future. Our story starts back in the Second World War era. One of the key elements of the WW2 war effort was the critical supply line to the Allies in Europe through ocean shipping from North America. That lifeline was important, but it was also the target of German U-boat attacks. One of the practical needs for those strategic ocean transport vessels was lubricants for their mostly steam-powered motors. The oil of choice for this application came from a plant called rapeseed, and it was first brought to Canada by a Polish immigrant in the 1930s. So, I know, terrible branding, right? Rapeseed? Well, it's kind of a unique oil, unusually high in long-chain fatty acids called icosanoic and erucic acid, and this was able to keep the ship's motors lubricated even at high temperatures. In any case, Canadian farmers agreed to grow a lot of rapeseed and that made a major contribution to the war effort by keeping the ships going. Well, after the war, there was no great need for rapeseed oil. But the Canadian farmers wished they could continue to grow this crop. It made a great rotation partner with the wheat, barley, and pulses, like legumes, you know, like dry beans, lentils, and peas, which were the other things that they were growing. So a team of plant breeders at the University of Saskatchewan and at the National Research Council's Prairie Regional Laboratory, sort of took on kind of as an extra added-on job the challenge of turning rapeseed into a crop that would produce edible oil for people and a suitable seed meal feed for animals. Now, what the breeders were trying to do was far from easy. While excellent for engine lubrication, rapeseed oil had some limitations for use in food and feed. First of all, breeders needed to get the plant to stop making erucic acid because that isn't an edible oil. They also needed the crop to stop making compounds not suitable for feed, such as the glucosylinates that made it unpalatable to animals. And further change was required to make the oil suitable for processing into edible oils, margarine, and other fats for use in baking and frying. 
Also, the other reason they wanted to get rid of that glucosylinic component was that it contained sulfur, and that would mess up the catalysts that are used to make a partially hydrogenated version of the oil, something that was commonly done in that era based on the idea that vegetable oils are healthier than animal fats. To pursue these goals, the plant breeders needed a big support team, because unlike breeding just for yield or pest resistance, it was necessary to check on the kinds of fatty acids in the oil, and that took the expertise of food scientists and chemists. Now, there was a brand new technology at that time called gas-liquid chromatography, and there were several scientists who aided the breeders by developing ways to do this, which was much faster than analyzing the oil content the old-fashioned way. And they actually refined this method to the point where they could test the oil content with one half of a seed and still be able to grow plants from the other half. That way they could identify maybe a new hybrid seed in which the fatty acid content was headed in the right direction and grow them for another round of breeding. Another member of this ad hoc team was a nutritionist named Michael Eskin at the University of Manitoba. And his contribution was to test the new candidate seed strains for cooking properties and nutrient availability. A few years ago, I happened to end up seated next to Eskin and his wife on a flight from Saskatoon to the U.S., so I got to hear a lot of this story in person. Rapeseed comes from an important and versatile member of a family of plants called brassicas. The wild ancestor of these crops is called mustard, and it is the origin of quite a few important food crops that humans have developed over the centuries. Mustard is the species from which broccoli, cauliflower, kale, kohlrabi, turnips, and cabbage were derived. More recently, a new vegetable called Romanesco has been developed from this very flexible source of genetics. The breeders started by crossing lines of Brassica napus and Brassica campestris collected from around the world, including one key line that was brought in by a visiting Polish breeder. Obviously, even though these scientists were using traditional breeding methods, they were definitely coming up with candidates that wouldn't just happen in nature without human intervention. As such, they were definitely genetically modified organisms, as are most of the crops that humans now cultivate. This kind of hybrid novel crop is not subject to the kind of controversy that's directed at GMO crops, even though less is actually known about the details of the thousands of genes that are involved in these new man-made hybrids. Before you think of that as something that sounds scary, you, you should realize there's nothing new. For instance, around 10,000 years ago, Babylonian farmers in the Middle East sort of accidentally selected the large seeded grains that worked in their primitive farming efforts and ended up selecting for a hybrid of three grass species that came to be modern-day wheat. If you have a chance, I strongly recommend that you read Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germ, and Steel, which does an amazing job of documenting how wheat and certain domesticated animals from the Middle East became the drivers of the global spread of Western civilization. Back to our canola story. The team of breeders, chemists, animal scientists, agronomists, food scientists, and a nutritionist ultimately achieved their ambitious goal of making a new crop. And in 1978, the Western Canadian Oilseed Crushers Association wisely rebranded the rapeseed as canola. The can part obviously refers to its Canadian orchard. The ol part refers to the plant's oil content based on the Latin root oleo for oil. 
And it ends with an A for acid, meaning that the new crop had a changed fatty acid composition. Now, fats and oils are made from three fatty acids linked to a glycerol backbone, and the properties of the oil depend on which fatty acids are attached. Now, as you probably have heard, olive oil has long been considered a premium quality source of fat because it is high in a monounsaturated fatty acid, particularly oleic acid. That fatty acid is considered to be particularly healthy, and it also has the desirable cooking property of a high smoke point. Oleic acid has 18 carbons in its chain structure with just one double bond between the carbons and 17 single bonds. Typical animal fats are called saturated, meaning that they don't have any double bonds, and they typically also have 18 carbons. Now, saturated fats are shelf-stable and good for cooking at high temperatures, like the way that you fry foods. Now, if there are fatty acids in the oil that have two or three double bonds, the high temperatures in a frying thing would cause them to react with oxygen and they make off flavors and smoke. The reason we ever started making partially hydrogenated fats was to deal with that issue, to make various vegetable oils like soybean oil useful for frying. A chemical step was necessary to turn those polyunsaturated fats into the less unstable forms for shelf stability and lower rancidity. Unfortunately, in that process, some of the fats got their remaining double bonds messed up to become trans fats something that's rare in nature and ultimately something we learned was actually unhealthy. I'm not a fan of the absurd rich world phenomenon of buying foods for what it's not, but in this case, I'm glad we have finally moved to a no trans fat era. Well, that single double bond fatty acid, oleic acid, is sort of the best of all possibilities. It's stable for cooking even at high temperatures, and even with all the shifts in what has been considered healthy or unhealthy fats, it's been consistently considered the kind of fat that's good for us, better than saturated fats and better than polyunsaturated fats. It's sort of a Goldilocks scenario, just right. Well, what the canola breeding chemistry nutrition team ultimately achieved was a crop whose seed oil is even higher in oleic acid than olive oil and very low in saturated or polyunsaturated fats. It's good for cooking and eating. Olive oil has some distinctive flavors based on other chemicals it contains, but otherwise, canola oil is as good or better for most cooking and food needs. It's definitely the oil of choice in my kitchen. There are also good sustainability characteristics of canola. Bees love its flowers, and when the canola fields of the Canadian prairies are in bloom, it's just a sea of brilliant yellow that's great for all sorts of pollinators. Again, there are some beautiful pictures of this in the text version of this podcast. Well, since the late 70s, when the new crop came into existence, it has increased in production from 2 million to 16 million tons per year. But 70% of that increase was through improved yields rather than an increase in planted area. Some of the yield increases occurred through continuing breeding efforts in both the public and private sector and through the development of hybrid lines. That sort of increasing land use efficiency is exactly what we need to meet growing food demands while sparing our remaining wild lands. Now, canola became one of the earliest crops to also be improved via genetic engineering starting back in 1995. And there were three kinds of herbicide tolerance available for the crop. 
And this has enabled many of the growers to use no-till methods that improve soil health, which in turn helps with yield. You can hear more about no-till farming in an earlier podcast titled To Till or Not to Till, That is the Question. Now, as is the case for any crop, there are insect and fungal pests to deal with. There's a particularly damaging pest called a flea beetle that feeds on young canola plants as they emerge in the spring. Seed treatments with a systemic insecticide provide full protection of the crop's yield potential, but at very low per acre rates because it's just on the seed. And the chemical is gone by the time the canola blooms, so it's not a threat to bees. In the provinces of Canada that have managed to exclude the bee parasite, the varroa mite, the bee colony collapse issues that have been a problem in some areas were never seen in those areas, even with that extensive use of that seed treatment. And there are some important fungal diseases that can attack canola, but well-timed fungicide applications have been quite successful and used to minimize that yield threat. So, to summarize, within the short space of about a half century, a real star of a sustainable, healthy, and beautiful crop has been born. It's a great example of the kind of public-private science cooperation and farmer-enabled implementation that we need. Now, who could we get to write a ballad about canola? You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.